Welcome to the Washdown Podcast. And on tonight's episode, we have Brian Sims. And Brian is the founder and national director of Project Rebirth. He is an Army infantry veteran and emergency manager. Um, he shares his story with us and what Project Rebirth is all about. It's a great episode. We had a great time shooting it. So I hope you guys like it. Um, yeah, like, subscribe, follow, all that stuff. And uh, here you go the Washdown Podcast with special guest Brian Sims from Project Rebirth. Like an existing logo. Like if you wanted to use like an NFL logo. So uh-huh. I specifically made all these different changes. The color, colors count, right? So it's not the exact <laughs> colors, right? So I was very smart about that shit. <laughs> <laughs> but I got the branding and the branding works. As everyone sees it, they're like, real American hero, bro. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. I found that's, it. That's what I thought. I'll be honest. Dude. <laughs> I, I sang the song in my head and everything. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently Hasbro is playing uh full episodes 24 hours a day on youtube of gi really? joe yeah i, I saw that. that yeah i saw it the other day and drove my wife up the wall for about an hour and a half <laughs> she's <laughs> like are you done yet and i'm like this is my childhood leave me alone <laughs> do you understand i need to see if snake eyes actually gets hit this time <laughs> I, I can answer that that's a no yeah it's a, <laughs> it's a no and sergeant slaughter somehow survives yet again <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah indestructible 15 billion rounds fired zero hits <laughs> i mean you know i actually uh was listening to uh i think a, duke got hit once well i was listening to a book the other day um i can't remember who the author is uh my wife listens to a lot of books while she drives and she had one going in the truck and the guy was talking about in war um, specifically the civil war but it carries over into all wars about people's um not unwillingness, but like why so many rounds are fired, but people aren't getting hit. And it's like, people just don't want to kill other people. And like, even like in the civil war, the battle, the battle of Gettysburg, he talked about how they found like 20,000 or 25,000 muskets after the battle that were not only loaded, but some of them loaded multiple times up to one they found was loaded 23 times. So people were like loading their gun, pretending to shoot, reloading their gun, hmm. pretending to shoot is weird. Hmm. I'll believe it. Yeah. Yeah. I can see yeah. it. So I get it. And you know, that one, that, 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 that war, especially. Yeah. yeah. I mean, family versus family, you know, brother versus so brother. He actually brought that up too. And he said that usually civil wars are more vicious than nation against nation because it's more um what's the term you use like it's more offensive yeah it's more personal it's more offensive whenever they're doing something that you don't agree with and they're your family or your i can see it there's neighbor versus neighbor but not (laughs) we just we just had some dude shoot someone (laughs) here's a florida story for you right florida man love it there's a florida man for you so literally it was i think it was yesterday or maybe it was the day before yesterday i just saw it yesterday so homeboy's trimming his trees and his neighbor comes out and he's like hey get your shit off my lawn right and the guy's like all right dude and he keeps trimming his lawn and i guess the guy got pissed so he came out with a gun because the guy came over the fence to get the stuff that had fallen on his side of the fence he's like get the fuck off my lawn now right <laughs> and the guy's like bro what is your problem 
And then he, he's got the gun pointed at him. And the guy's like, hey, man, fuck you. And the guy's like, boom, just shoots him like that. Like, And then he tried to claim like self-defense no. and protection. We're like, that shit ain't going to fly, bro. No, that one don't work. <laughs> no, no. That's some Florida shit. That's a stretch. Head. Oh, man. Yeah, you, got, you guys have some interesting characters down there. What is it about that state that just seems to draw them all in? It's the heat. Well, there, there, is that. Crazy. There, there is that, but so I'm going to circle back to the Civil War for you. So technically, the state of Florida is still seceded from the Union because they were not present at Appomattox Courthouse to sign off and to certify that document. So Florida is weird because the Panhandle region, you know, the whole top part of it, mm-hmm. not the peninsula that comes down, isn't really like Florida. It's South Alabama, South Georgia, right? So there's this like deep South, like mentality of like the South will rise again and Tallahassee really isn't part of the union. And, <laughs> and then you've got the very Southern end in South Florida, you know, I'm, I'm born and raised in Miami and because, I mean, we're another fucking country down there. <laughs> it is not, it is because there's so many people who are either first generation or second generation Americans and they have their own small little cultures going on. So like we have, it's just a different mentality. And the truth is, is the majority of the state, except for like along the coast and then Orlando is very fucking rural, dude. Like it's the swamps and, and like Palmetto pines and all that stuff. And like people out there doing some weird shit, dude. <laughs> weird shit. <laughs> That's what it is. It's all, it's, I mean, we what were the gators and the, the venomous snakes. The yeah. What do you think? What do you think's left over when you drain the swamp? I mean, Florida, dude. <laughs> oh, Brian, thanks for coming on the show, man. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you and uh, what you do. Sure. My name is Brian Sims. I am the national director of Project Rebirth. I am a certified recovery peer specialist for veterans in the state of Florida. I'm also a veteran, veteran supported recovery professional peer specialist in the state of New York. Uh, both of these states are two of the only states that actually have like training programs and specific designations for uh, the profession of peer support. <clears throat> I'm also a U.S. Army infantry veteran in long-term recovery. And what that means for me is I no longer utilize alcohol, drugs, or even trying to attempt to take my own life to solve the issues or barriers or struggles that I have today. Cool. So walk me through or you know share as much as you want about how what led you to starting project rebirth def uh that's definitely a long story um cliff notes are fine yeah i I mean i'll I'll try and do that and then maybe we can use that to to go deeper on some stuff um as i said you know I i was in the infantry um, I got hurt. I got deadlined really quick. My last uh, duty station was in Fort Irwin, California, which for anyone that's ever been out there, it's the Mojave Desert, right? Death Valley is literally part of the military reservation. Uh, it is Barstow, California. It is the asshole of the world, bro. It's <laughs> fucking cold. Um, we're, you're, we're, we're not a non-deployable unit. We're, we're a training unit. And I'll tell you, I, some of the like, best guys I ever worked with was out there. I mean, we have very high proficiency because uh, we're playing op for opposing forces. So we're, we're literally doing crazy training stuff all the time. But uh, the way that that worked was uh, essentially like in a one-month period, you have these brigades and, 
and SOCOM attachments that would come with the brigades. And, you know, they're going to Iraq or Afghanistan, and we would simulate Iraq or Afghanistan out there in the middle of the desert. Really crazy, cool stuff. I mean, we had full cities built out there. Um, Hollywood comes out to help build the stuff with Hollywood effects, and there's like sewers and jails and all sorts of stuff. There's goats and donkeys randomly running around the desert that have escaped from the pins and things like that. <laughs> um, it's a really interesting place. Um, so you would have like in a month, you'd have about three weeks of trading, right? And kind of tail end of, of the month, right? So beginning and end of the month, sorry, uh, book ending it. Uh, at the very end would be a four day pass that you'd be working towards, right? So you get a four days off. And uh, again, it being Barstow, California, that's halfway between Vegas and LA. So here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm hurt, I'm out there, I'm not like kicking doors and shooting bad guys and doing all the stuff that, that the infantry, because uh, we're crazy, that's what we love to do. Um, and, and I was angry and I was frustrated, I didn't really know what to do. Um, I wasn't a big drinker. I was always the guy that kind of DD'd for people, um, but I'm from Miami. Uh, you know, I've, I've done my share of partying before I went uh, in the army. And I went to Vegas and it was like Memorial Day weekend and I was lit, dude. Um, <clears throat> so I don't handle alcohol well. I was wandering around casinos, uh, ended up hooking up with, with some limo driver had gotten out of the Marines, whatever. And he was jacked up and I was jacked up. And uh, in a lot, ended up using drugs with him, um, realized kind of as I came out of this blackout, like that was not a good idea. Tried to, to like, you know, drink a bunch of cranberry juice and water and get myself out of it. Uh, I didn't know that I, I could have just reported the fact that, you know, I, I screwed up, you know, and the army would have helped me. Uh, no leader ever told me that, that that was a possibility or anything. So I failed that drug test. So luckily, um, you know, the things that I did, the guys that I worked with and such, I had this commander who really, really liked me a lot and understood, you know, who I was at core and the type of soldier I really was. And that really, I, I just screwed up, screwed up bad, but I screwed up. But he got me out under honorable conditions. Thank God they could have easily given me an other than honorable discharge. But, you know, he went to my, to our battalion commander, squadron commander and said, you know, don't do it to this guy. Like he doesn't deserve to be screwed over that way. I'd still have VA benefits. Um, I am 100% disabled at this point, but uh, when I got out, uh, I struggled for a while. Uh, and I got out in 2010. Um, I kind of uh, floated around a little bit, grabbed up some jobs. We were talking about I, I worked for like a marketing institution as a creative director. My very first job was at an Apple store. I was a genius at the Genius Bar. <laughs> um, <laughs> Genius infantry. It just doesn't, I know, but it works, right? It's like army um, intelligence. It's... Exactly. <laughs> I feel like there's irony, a double entendre, something. <laughs> um, so uh I, I you know I'm, I'm working and, and the truth is is I it doesn't matter how I got out because I shared the exact same experience that everyone shared, whether you're medically discharged, fully honorable dishonorable doesn't make a difference the exit from the military especially is the exact same thing you, you know you go around to different stations and you turn in your gear and all that type of stuff and at the end they just slide you a piece of paper and they tell you best of luck and uh you know i had again i had va benefits so i went to the miami va and i was like hey um i'm here to sign up and they're like great i'm like okay and i'm signing paperwork and like yeah so uh we need to get your medical records. I was like, yeah, they got sent to you. They're like, no, it didn't. Like, what are you talking about? 
Well, it turns out that, that they don't do that. <laughs> it's not their job to get my medical records. Uh, it took a while to get my unit to send them over. Uh, that finally happened, but that took months. And during that time frame, you know, back to where I was saying like that, that transition was just sliding a piece of paper kind of across the desk and being like, good luck. You know, it, it, we spend hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars indoctrinating and training individuals to get into the military. It's the same thing with the, with the firefighter profession, uh, especially with law enforcement, very paramilitary type operations, right? Like those academies are meant to break us down from being a civilian and turn us into something else, most especially a teammate, right? That, that adheres to certain values and, and mores and, and a culture, right? You're indoctrinated into this culture, but there is no exit scenario for that whatsoever. There is no deprogramming of that. So here I am, I'm, I'm working as a civilian and, you know, working with a team of guys. And, uh, you know, I was, went back to doing what I was doing, which was partying, because I just didn't know how to really deal with life. I was trying to figure stuff out, kind of floating along. Didn't have support from the VA. Um, and I just, I'm running a team of dudes and like, you know, I'm used to, if there's a problem, like for instance, in marketing world, we have deadlines, right? Like you got to have this flyer done. You've got to have this design done, right? It's things like that. Um, if you are not, if you miss a deadline, there is no missing of a deadline. Let's be real. Like you cannot miss deadlines in the warrior profession, right? Because to miss a deadline, um, that could mean someone's life. So we don't play with that stuff, right? Um, so I, I was getting very frustrated. I didn't know how to how to properly lead that team. Uh, I couldn't make them do push-ups. You know, I couldn't. I did. I what I didn't know what to do. So so I did what I was trained to do as a leader in the military, which was do their fucking work for them because you're the last person responsible. Now in the civilian world, that may translate somewhat, but certainly not to the. the to the degree that that we're trained in, in in all of our warrior professions, right? Um, and that just burnt me out, dude. Uh, <clears throat> went to drinking and drugging really, really heavily. I literally drove like into the ghetto in my car, and I was like, oh, "I'm gonna die down here. Uh, something will happen. I'll probably get shot. Whatever. I'll go out. I'll take a couple of these fuckheads with me or something. I don't know what my insane thinking was, and but that's what I did. And Really, at the end of the day, what happened was eventually a VA outreach worker found me and, and that kind of rolled me into being like, okay, I need to rethink what I'm doing with my life here. Um, and I kind of like what this guy does He's a social worker. So I was like, you know, I, I think maybe I, what I want to do is be a social worker. Now, my mindset was I'm going to go to graduate school now. My, my undergrad is uh, my undergrad alma mater is uh, University of Central Florida. Go Knights, charge on kicking butt this season already um <laughs> but uh so i'm gonna go to this graduate school and i'm gonna and i'm gonna like learn all this stuff i'm gonna do my practicums and my internships and uh i'm gonna do it at the va i knew that they would take me as an intern and i'm like gonna fix the va right <laughs> exactly exactly good luck like, <laughs> uh, i learned very quickly uh because I've been on the other side of the desk a few times at this point, right? Um, that's sitting on the opposite side where, where now I'm, I'm a provider, or at least a student trying to be a provider, um, <clears throat> that that was uh, a fallacy. And, and through that, I started learning about the peer support profession. Uh, <clears throat> and we'll talk about what that is and, and how to become one, all that stuff later. But 
I was then recruited during school. Well, I was actually, I was volunteering for Team Rubicon. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Team Rubicon or not, but I still remember their spiel, which is uh, Team Rubicon unites the skills of veterans, first responders to rapidly deploy emergency response teams to disaster affected areas. They do emergency management, right, from the nonprofit sector. And they do that typically with veterans and first responders, though they, uh, they do allow civilians and family members, anyone really can join. Uh, but they're very, very diligent on training, uh, making sure everyone's done ICS, they understand NIMS, all that type of stuff. I know you guys have done plenty of those classes. I mean, emergency management, back then, this is 2012, um, you know, even back then, really, emergency management was dominated by like retired firefighters, right? Because you guys know incident command, right? so that's what you do. We, you we, use, it, we use it a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit, right? <laughs> um, but so then I, I was then hired as a regional manager. So FEMA Region Four, which is the Southeast United States, um, <clears throat> I was their uh, regional program operations manager, which meant like. When activated, uh, I was usually like a chief level operation side. Uh, we started an IMT team. That IMT team is is pretty badass. Uh, so I got to do a bunch of deployments with them. But on the blue sky days, um, so you know, non-activation, just no disaster. Uh, really, my job was volunteer management and creating wellness programs. And and I learned about all different types of stuff like assist, which is applied suicide intervention skills training. Anyone out there? please get trained in this thing. Like it is absolutely the gold standard in suicide prevention training, uh, but most especially anyone that's working for public safety agencies and such. So I, you know, I'm doing all these types of things and, and I was enjoying what I was doing. And uh, I ended up moving to Hawaii and doing some work out there with them and flipped to, uh, to San Diego. And when I was in San Diego, I kind of hit like another depressive state again for a while. Um, I was having like anxiety attacks and panic attacks. I went to the Torrey Pines VA, which is gorgeous. You know, it's a little bit of golfing out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I got to do these things and go to these places, but you know, I went to the VA and I was like, Hey, listen, um, like I'm having these panic attacks. You guys need to give me something. Like, I don't know what to do, how to handle this. And they told me, Oh, you, this is classic drug seeking behavior. I was like, dude, I've been like sober for a while. Like I, I need help. I'm asking you for help. And they turned me away. What they did give me was 45 pills of trazodone, which is a, a common uh, prescription that they utilize in the VA, usually for like sleep. Uh, it's a sedative, you know, at the end of the day, it's what it is. Mm -hmm. So I got my prescription filled, you know, walked downstairs and got my prescription filled, went to the apartment. I was, you know, staying with a friend who, former corpsman, and, and he was currently uh, working as EMS uh, over there in San Diego. And, uh, I swallowed all 45 pills, washed it down with a bottle of fireball and went to sleep and not expecting to wake up again. Um, he happened to get cut that day. I don't know why. I still don't even know that full story of like, how, how, why were you cut from a shift? Like that doesn't even make sense to me. Um, but it, he was, and he figured it out because he could tell that I was home in my car and all that. I wasn't answering the door. He kicked in the door. This is what he had told me. Um, and they got me to the hospital. I, I did go into both respiratory and cardiac arrest. Uh, so I basically died on the table twice. Um, <clears throat> but I'm alive. I'm walking. I'm talking. I don't think I have too much brain damage. So, you know, <laughs> could just be the infantry, man. I don't know. 
Uh, <laughs> you know, you can't ever rule that out. Yeah, I mean, there, there is that. I do. I mean, I have TBIs, you know, which which affect my short term memory. I have to do like a lot of note taking and stuff like that uh, to be able to even remember like what I needed to do in like 10 minutes from now sometimes. Um, <laughs> but, uh, hey, you know, the, all of those strategies and all that type of stuff is, is things that I learned over the years working with so many other amazing leaders and and warrior advocates and, and the different programs and schools and stuff I went to. And um, I, I stayed in emergency management. I actually switched into uh, professional emergency management and became an emergency management contractor. I am a FEMA certified emergency management professional. Um, and uh, so I was working for BCFS and I got deployed Harvey, Irma, Maria, Florence, Michael, floods, fires, I, on on the emergency management side, my expertise lies both in unified and incident command, as well as active shooter and mass casualty incidents and mitigation, utilizing technologies and geospatial stuff, so mapping and things like that. Um, so I had a good uh, like skill set that was being utilized. Um, but right before Harvey happened, and I kind of did all of those deployments, I had moved back to Florida and was working for an organization called Fellowship Recovery Community Organization. And uh, I became their director of veteran services. And I was doing that for like two years and then Harvey happened and I kind of just stayed deployed and, and bouncing around throughout, you know, up until the pandemic. And then in the pandemic, I was like, I'm burnt from this. Like, I don't, first off, I didn't sign up for like public health shit. This is not what I want. <laughs> do um i don't think any of us yeah. <laughs> like that's what think... you have the cdc right like why am i doing this yeah. i mean i get it and it was super important and and again I'm, I'm i'm proud of the work that i did and and all the stuff that that we accomplished um do i agree with everything that went down hell no uh i was in the military i didn't agree with everything there but we get the job done type stuff but that that wrapped up and i came back home again to miami i hadn't really spent time with my family for a while so that was the intention just to kind of like take a breather, you know, uh, pause, reset, relax a little bit. That didn't happen. Um, <laughs> that organization I told you about, Fellowship, uh, again, they're a recovery community organization or an RCO. So this RCO, which was in Fort Lauderdale, which is Broward County, just to the north of Miami, they had started an RCO in Miami-Dade County and for uh, for the, it's really Miami-Dade and Monroe, which is the Florida Keys as well. And um, the executive director at that time, he said, hey, would you like to create a program for us that would serve veterans? And I thought about it because the truth is I wanted to say no, like I'm trying not to do any of this stuff right now, uh, but I just couldn't say no. Um, but I, I said I would do it only if I could serve veterans, first responders, and then their families. Because again, warriors, right? Veterans, first responders, and, and those associated public safety type professions. Um, we, may not, we may not all face, we all face the same types of barriers and issues. We just are all entering that house of issues in a different door, solidus, right? Uh, and most especially when it comes to trauma, grief, stress, complex trauma, things like that. Um, substance misuse, moral injury. Moral injury is one of our big things these days we're, we're working with people on. Um, so all I was going to do was create this program for these guys and kind of hand it off. 
And what ended up happening was like a good emergency manager before I really started the program, I surveyed the scene, right? That's the first thing you got to do. And yeah. what I did was I, I took a look around at all these recovery community organizations. And so you guys know there's about 30 in the state of Florida and almost 200 across the nation. It's not like a new concept. Um, and an RCO itself is a grassroots nonprofit that is staffed by individuals with lived experience with substance misuse and or mental health uh, barriers. And, and they have overcome those, they're in recovery from those, and then they are trained and certified by their state to be able to provide certain services. Really that looks kind of like case management and care coordination and stuff like that. But but most especially at base, it's peer support, right? It's it's the ability to build rapport rapidly because, hey, I've been there, I've done that. I, I know exactly how you feel in this situation, right? It, it brings down a lot of the walls and barriers uh, that we may have with, uh, for instance, a civilian clinician, which peer specialists are not clinicians. We don't therapize, that's not what we do. But regardless, the ability to have that one-on-one uh, -on -one on the level communication is the game changing type thing, right? So I, I looked around and there were no veterans programs at all in the state of Florida. And state of Florida has, is the third largest veteran population in the US behind Texas and California. Um, so I thought, well, that's unacceptable. We need to change that. So I, I decided to create like a, a structure for a program let me create a training that goes alongside of it, get it accredited so people can actually get continuing education with it, right? And give it a little bit of weight behind it. Um, and let me do this training and give these guys these programs so that they can serve veterans and first responders appropriately. I mean, our, our warrior class, like, I mean, come on, we're a little bit weird, we're a little bit crazy. We have a little, we had a different <laughs> culture. Um, you know, typically I'm wearing like my hat, right? you know flag operator hat i think the the main big difference looking at me as opposed to a lot of other warriors in our profession is like i'm not sleeved up like you guys you guys well you were smart you saved your money and didn't yeah. spend it on useless well, dumb shit and, and you know what it, it, it just baffles me that i've made it through all the things i've made it through military and whatnot and i still haven't gotten a tattoo you know how many times i've designed one <laughs> i did I just never do it, right? I guess I just never got wasted enough to like walk in for the first tattoo, so it didn't take off. Because everyone tells me, you get your first one, that's it, done. Yep. Oh You're yeah, done. That, that's all it takes. Yeah, <laughs> I strongly advise you to go get one. <laughs> <laughs> Bad influence. <laughs> your pressure now. That's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely that guy. <laughs> and and you see, like, so you know the the banter and the and the the kind of camaraderie that we have instantaneously with each other. I mean, we're not even close to being geographically uh, near each other. Um, but but the fact that we can have conversations like this is that is what we need at base. Right. But the truth of the matter is, it's like that's been around for a while. Um, there are plenty of agencies, public safety agencies that have peer support teams in them. And the VA has has certified peer specialists that work all throughout the VA and all sorts of sections and hospitals and outpatient clinics and vet centers and all that type of stuff. Um, but but those peer specialists are kind of put into a corner. They're on a multidisciplinary team. And so, so the roles are limited as opposed to how peer specialists work in a recovery community organization. And these RCOs, 
especially in the state of Florida. So I'll just use it as the case examples we're talking. So we're funded, all these RCOs are funded by SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. So that's federal funding that then comes down to the state of Florida, goes to all states, but hits the state of Florida. And then that money is like goes to Department of Children's and Families. And then they oversee that block grant being subgranted to these organizations to provide peer supportive services free and confidentially. So I was like, okay, this is a way for us to actually provide services outside of these peer support teams because I know a lot of amazing um, like cops and firefighters are on peer support teams, but there's a lot of problems there. The number one problem being, let's be real, like those of us in these professions, we're fucking gossipers, bro. Like we all talk, <laughs> we're family, right? Like your cousins on that team. I went to academy with that guy. Everyone knows each other. So we're all talking, not because we're trying to talk shit, but because everyone just kind of knows each other, right? Or knows someone who's literally related to someone and all that type of stuff, you know? So it just happens, right? So some of these peer support teams, especially in the larger agencies, like their offices on the same floor as IA and the brass, dude. So you go in, the moment you get out of your car, right? People are like, what is, what's Sims doing here, right? Like he must be in mm-hmm. trouble. Why, why are you at the EOC, right? Like, why are you here? So there's already people are like, what's up? Then you get in the elevator and you're like, you hit that fifth floor button. Everyone's like, mm, must've been that shooting from the other day. Must've been that, <laughs> that accident that Sism almost went to, you know, something like that, right? So. So the barrier, both real and perceived, of reaching out and asking for help from a peer support team internal to an agency, it's the bar is kind of high there, right? Um, so there's also other inherent things that that you don't get from those teams, and then most especially you go to the EAP side of stuff, right? Like I never want to to discourage someone from reaching out for help. But I want people to understand that the vast majority of agencies, when you go to your EAP program, if you ask to go to treatment and stuff like that, you're not the client, the agency is the client. You don't necessarily have HIPAA protection, right? You don't have, and if you don't go to the right place, that place may be putting, because you know you guys have your insurance plan, right? They may be putting certain diagnoses into your record that the agency is 100% allowed to see. That's an easy pull on records. And now what happens? Now you're on desk duty. Now you're getting reviewed. Now you got new psych reviews, right? Now, some people know that. Some people don't know that. Regardless, it's still the same outcome, which is mistrust from the agency. And most importantly, another barrier to seeking help. So what I've determined or what we figured out was, so if you come to an outside peer specialist who is certified by their state, they're allowed to provide, they are mandated to provide HIPAA protection for you we can activate those resources directly to EAP in a way that does not allow it to get into your records, right? So that you can get the help you want, right? Get the help you need and then come back to your unit. And and now you've come back with some resilience, more strength and and more ready for the next time when those critical incidents happens, right? That maybe you can support the guy that's next to you, right? That organic growth of resilience within an agency is what's needed. Now, there's a lot of agencies that have made a lot of progress when it comes to mental health initiatives, 
but I'm never going to bullshit anyone. The majority of guys are fucking checking boxes, dude. And that's the fact, yeah. right? No, you're, you're a hundred percent right with that. And the, the culture and the mistrust of, you know, admin and them being able to see what you're going to do. I mean, in reality, you would think, or you would hope that there would be some kind of protection, especially on the, you know, it can affect, you know, firefighters potentially, but for law enforcement officers, that's a huge barrier and a huge liability to go and seek help because if they're, Oh, well, you had depression. Well, did you have depression when you arrested this person who is now suing the department? You know, did you, were you really acting how you should have been? So, cause all that shit's now public record, you know, there's that portion alongside, I think, uh, so like talking about treatment and, and I'll go into some of the stuff we do about treatment centers specifically. So there are a lot of treatment centers that have contracts with agencies to provide mental health and or substance use treatment, right? The question becomes, are you going to a place that has civilians there, especially on the law enforcement side? You know, the barrier of like, dude, I could be with anyone. They're going to find out I'm a cop. That shit goes on social media. Now I'm really screwed, right? Mm -hmm. Or not unrealistically, but what if I go to a place and there's like someone that I know or I arrested them or I arrested one of their family members, like, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. that barrier is an unacceptable barrier, right? So yeah. we vet and verify treatment centers that market themselves as having veteran and first responder programs. Some just do veterans, some do both, some just do first responders. So we put them through a bunch of criteria, everything from, do you have like, like these warriors on staff? Do you have clinicians who are, which that's not necessarily like, we don't make that a, a be all end all, but you need to have people on your staff that, that are warriors, right? That can actually build rapport and talk through some stuff and things like that. Do you have a track as they call it, which means you're just mixed in with everyone, but you maybe have a couple groups that are separated. Do you have a program where the programming is literally, you are a separate population, which is where we really want to get guys to, or are you a completely, uh, compartmentalized treatment center where all you do is serve veterans and or first responders, right? So we want to get guys to those places as opposed to, well, the EAP said this is the place to go. Because, I mean, let's be real. Like, if especially if it's your first time around with this, what the fuck do you know? Do you really know? Of course you don't know. And, and I don't blame anyone for not knowing. Like, I mean, we all sure can get on Google and all that. But let me tell you something. I'm from South Florida. The treatment capital of the world you know how many like pennsylvanians <laughs> new yorkers new jersey dudes boston people we have every single time i meet one in south florida i'm like did you come here for treatment bro <laughs> and they're like yeah <laughs> well, and to, to you know to add another point to that is whenever you know in these populations whenever <laughs> it's time for us to go to a treatment facility we get to that point you know the wheels have fucking fallen off and shit's hit the fan and we're not exactly in the right frame of mind to be doing a deep dive and research of, oh, well, this place only serves these people or this place is this. They got a five star review. Mm -hmm. We're not thinking that way. We're thinking, OK, I hope I don't kill myself in the next five seconds. A hundred percent. I uh, <clears throat> like kind of alongside that. I, I do want to plug like a couple of places that are really good in case anyone listens to this and is seeking these services. So do it down gold standard warrior's heart if you guys don't know warrior's heart 
go look it up. Uh, Warrior's Heart is the preeminent facility for veterans and first responders. They got an, a location in Texas has amazing services attached to it, alongside the fact they just opened a brand new Virginia facility. Okay, so they are awesome. There's also Heroes Mile in Deland, Florida, which is kind of central Florida. Uh, there's a couple other programs that we work with, like uh, White Sands, um, Haven for Heroes, uh, the <clears throat> Shatterproof program, which is down in South Florida, is a decent program for first responders as well. Um, so like all of those types of places, again, that's that's the criteria we're looking for. But but here's the deal. Like this is the reason why peer specialists on our side of house and through the Project Rebirth Network, which we have 18 affiliates across the nation, right? So we have 12 in the state of Florida. And these are on-site places, brick and mortar places you can go to or you can call into if that's not what you're comfortable with, that you can go and get these services, get that protection, get the guidance and navigation to get to where you're trying to go, right? Um, but if you call us, we'll help you navigate that, right? There isn't a fucking thing we do in the warrior profession that is not built around and reliant, honestly, upon being a teammate. Why are you trying to do this alone? You are not alone in this. There are so many of us who have been there and recovered. And then some of us, again, like me, have, have made this into like our profession. This is what we do full time, right? There is access to those resources. But I will say this because this is a major problem, both in the veteran and first responder community. There are a fuck ton of veteran and first responder nonprofits out there. I am not saying that all of them are jacked up or, or ethically, not ethically sound, but there's a lot of those, right? There's also nonprofits that <clears throat> have a really good website and say they do a lot of stuff and, and they may have at some point or they may in certain small areas, but the timeliness and of delivery of those services is a problem, right? So Project Rebirth, we vet and verify those places. We keep up with a lot of them and ask them like, hey, where's your intakes at right now? Like how long is it taking for you to process things? We know all of that background information about all of these organizations as well, right? Um, so understanding and having a battle buddy essentially, that teammate that can walk the path with you to get you where you're going, that is the most vital thing that any of us can do. And that's not typically what a peer support team technically does within an agency. They, they may give resources, but a lot of times I found also, because I've had, I've, I've worked with a lot of the peer support teams at different agencies. They all told me like, I'm only allowed to tell guys certain things, right? Like I'm only allowed to provide certain resources, right? And mm -hmm. uh, we haven't found that to be truly effective. It's certainly not solving the problem, when it comes to mental health and suicide and substance misuse, I mean, we're all seeing numbers shoot through, shoot through the roof in every single one of the sub-professions on the first responder side. The veteran side is is always this confusing number. Uh, if I asked you guys, right, like if I asked you how many veteran suicides a day there are, what number would you guys use? The, the typical 22 a day thing. Right? Both yeah, because that's what, yeah, that's my, what you see. My guess see. would be a lot higher in reality, but... Yeah, that's the number I would roll with just because that's what you hear consistently. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of organizations like uh, Mission 22 and things like that that have used that number as kind of like that's the benchmark. Right. Um, for a while, the VA's number has been lower than that. Their most recent report was 16.8, which I mean, anyone that does like finances, 
at 17. Don't get me wrong. Every life saved, that shit is very important, dude. Hands down. We need to save people, bro. Um, but if you took the time, which I don't uh, recommend you taking the time to, but read the VA uh, suicidality report, you will notice in there, there it, it states specifically that they don't look at certain data and that they even know that there's a gap in their information, right? Um, so they you leave all that aside and here's what our number is, right? So what happened is last year, America's Warrior Partnership got together, it was an amazing nonprofit, got together with Alabama and Duke University, two universities who are no slouches when it comes to research, right? Um, and they did a, a couple year long study where they use grads and undergrads to do all this research. And what they did was, the first thing they found was there was a lot of death certificates that the coroner or first responder just didn't check the veteran box, right? I mean, it happens, like normal paperwork screw ups happen, but also like, how do you know? Like you, you would need to know, or it would have to like hit in a database or something for you to check the box, right? So there was a major missing piece they found. Then what they decided to do was in the course of that investigation and that research, they determined that, wait a second, there's a lot of veterans who have been listed as uh, suicides or, or I'm sorry, accidental overdoses that should have been intentional overdoses, right? And, and to determine what that data was, I mean, they had to interview family members and first responders and all that stuff. And obviously a lot of the you know, data that's in there is a lot of people are like, we don't want to talk about it. So you, you also have to leave aside the, that number. So they put all those numbers back together, looked at the VA's data, and their number was 44 veterans a day. So it's the same. Yeah. The, the, uh, I read a white paper and it was based off the 2017, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just for firefighter suicides. And uh, I think the reported number was, and don't quote me on the exact number, but it was like 350 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, but the people who wrote the paper estimated that it would, could be as high as double that because of the exact same things you're talking about of reporting inaccuracies. And, you know, if we report it as accidental, then his family's going to get some money. If it's a suicide, then the insurance isn't going to pay out this, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. So yeah, it that doesn't surprise me not one bit. I think it was it was either twenty seven or twenty eighteen. Yeah, I think it was twenty eighteen maybe that the number of of firefighter suicides surpassed the amount of line of duty deaths. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That's pretty. Was, that's pretty consistent too. Yeah. yeah. Now it's it stayed consistent. You know, like clearly there's an issue, and and I do have to say like. Not that I agree with everything that they do, uh, but the IAFF has done a good job of, of trying to like throw more support behind the mental health supportive functions and, and their peer trainings and all that type of stuff. And PBA, FOPs, you know, on the law enforcement side, a lot of, a lot of those unions have done a good job of, of trying to spearhead different, um, different initiatives on that stuff. But if we go back to the peer support side in relation to those agencies and those unions, here's the big problem that I've identified. And, and I think that this is where, why we're not seeing as much success as we could. That's leaving aside the barriers we talked about before. And one of those things is everyone is doing something different. 
there is no standard, right? Like, wh- why yeah. are why are why do we all work in profession? Oh, like, there's it's, a it's, standard. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's 2023. You can't have standards. I, I mean, I guess <laughs> I don't. I'm just it. it this one just got banned on YouTube again. <laughs> yep. There I did was. not say the V word. <laughs> <laughs> now that he said the C word earlier. Well, it should be fine. definitely the P word. We're gonna we're gonna cut that. <laughs> um, but yeah, standards, right? Like, I mean, that's that's how we live our lives is based off standards in the warrior professions, right? And I don't know what it is. It's it's the same thing on the veteran side. I I don't know what this mentality is. Call it social media influence, right? Like the way it's become pervasive in our society, or whatever. But like. I don't know why everyone thinks they're like some special snowflake all of a sudden that like, Oh, I'm going to like do this thing. Right. Like it's because we all got trophies or, well, I didn't get trophies. <laughs> I was kidding. I had to earn my trophies, but <laughs> there's a lot of people that got trophies as a kid. I know my son, every sport he played, everybody got a trophy. <laughs> and it was, it was painful as the, when I, cause I was coaching them was to hand them out. It's like, we didn't win a game. Why do you get a medal? Every trophy I had, I earned. But that, but I think that leads that that's, you know, you can definitely see the correlation to where that was to where everybody's special and everybody's opinion matters, including including ours. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I I think there's a difference between uh, like a right to an opinion and then believing like your opinion is so meaningful and has you know it matters exactly than other people's opinion i think i mean i think a better way for me to say that is your opinion does matter but it doesn't necessarily matter more than someone else's opinion that includes me and the things i'm talking about on this episode straight up but regardless facts are facts like there's a standard for a reason like the federal government and states have set standards and yet in the peer support profession right Mm-hmm. so much so like for instance i can build medicaid like i'm i'm in that that portion that spectrum of care right so why are law enforcement agencies or or a firefighter or other type of uh public safety agency deciding uh, we're just going to do this and f the whole thing right like i don't get that i oh, don't you mean reinvent the wheel that's what Maybe. you're talking about yeah well, so so I don't, I'll... I don't think it's reinventing the wheel in so much as it's like ah we're gonna do what we want yeah. Well, it's one of those things where, and you can talk to, we'll talk about the firefighter profession for a second. Like, so you go to this one, it, it even varies from station to station or firehouse to firehouse, whatever you want to, and shift to shift of how we load the hose on the truck. You know, oh, it's, well, this way is the way that we do it. And it's the best way. Well, then the next shift comes in and goes, well, that way is stupid. This way is better. Mm-hmm. And it's that constant, no, I know better than you know, because mm-hmm. I'm, you know, and that's the way that it, and yeah, I don't want to get too in the weeds with it, but you get like this one individual or one group of individuals who are in charge of these programs for these departments. And they go off of one little piece of information of this is, this is the be all and end all. And no peer support. We don't need that. It's just, you know, clinicians that will, that's what we need to do or no, it's all peer support, but then you have the classic, um, well, Bob knows Tom who knows Tammy, who knows this per- and you get that circle mm-hmm. and then their peer support team is completely tanked because nobody trusts them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I think it's a combination of issues that ultimately the culture has to change 
for any of these things that they're doing to be effective. I, I agree. Having, having a standard where it's like, no, this we know works. Let's do this would be really freaking helpful. Mm -hmm. The National uh, Association of Police Chiefs did like publish a standard for peer support stuff. Um, again, I don't understand why they needed to do that. The fucking standard is set by federal and state law. Why are you making a standard? There's no, what are you talking about? Like, it's the same thing. Like if you were a clinician, right? Like, dude, for real, would you go and, and go for clinical therapy for some trauma that from a critical incident to some dude that has a bachelor's degree in psychology? Hell no, you wouldn't. That is the mind. I mean, you're not even close to even understanding how to do that work, right? This is specialized work. And yet, because we were trying to get like the, the whole cop to cop, you know, firefighter, firefighter, vet to vet thing going, you know, like over the past 10, 15 years, let's call it, and, and all these nonprofits and agencies and stuff kind of like ran with it. They, they put the cart in front of the horse and understanding that, that there's certain things that need to happen along certain standards and, and the protections, most importantly, that, that allows you to effectively administer those types of programs and provide those services. Right. That's the thing that that's driving me. And, and again, a lot of peer support teams I've worked with, are, they're like, this is I'm tired of this. But I think that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I think that like us three right now, other you know individuals I talk to within this profession uh, on my side, as well as like the active side, let's call it the light at the end of the tunnel is we're having these conversations. Those OG brass, they're going to fucking retire. And it's going to be our turn. We are having conversations. We have the understanding. We have academies now that at least are really starting to address those issues and talk about the resources. So those probies are coming in already somewhat educated. And, and the more conversations we have about this, the more someone hits, you know, bat chief level or above or, you know, or gets a couple bars or stars or something like that. And now we've got individuals who are, are really understanding what it is that everyone needed boots on ground, right? And creating effective programs. I think it's still going to take another 10 to 15 years before we really start seeing that like change of command happen. But I do believe that the more we do things like this, like this podcast itself, uh, the more hope we have for, you know, the next couple generations that come in behind us, that they're not going to have to deal with these problems anymore because we've just ignored them for so long. And the only reason why we, we ignored them historically was the one thing that we may say to ourselves internally, but not realize it. And that is, I don't need help. I am the help. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what it boils down to. And if I'm the weak link, I'm a shit bag and I'm a problem and I cannot show that I'm the problem, dude, that cannot happen. Right. So I do feel like there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So I appreciate you guys you know, bringing me in and, and us having a conversation like this as well. No, well, yeah, we're, we're glad, we're glad you came on. <laughs> yeah. Thanks it, for it's a lot of information was given out that, I mean, a lot of places, lot, you know, the places he talked about down there in Florida. Yeah. I have no idea. Of course we don't live in Florida either, but still, I mean, yeah. you, can, you, you can still utilize them. You know, you never know who's going to hear something like, like he was saying. Yeah. Well, and I think it is. Yeah. It's like you said, it's important that, we're having those conversations 
and the change is starting in the academies, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. it's like you said, yeah, in the next, that's my hope as well in the next 10, 15 years that all of this stuff is going to be something of the past, you know, it's just going to be normal for people to be getting help and coming back to work. And it's just going to be part of the daily, you know, it's not a big deal. I've already noticed the change in the, in the firehouses. I mean, it's talked about a lot more. Yeah. It's definitely at the forefront after calls. It gets discussed. It's not, I don't think it's seen by a lot, by a lot of people as a weakness anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's kind of been my take from well, and that's, all those, the stations I've worked in recently, you know, being a floater. Yeah, <laughs> you get to get to go to oh, a lot yeah, of houses. Really but, seeing everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know, and you have the conversation. You know, a lot of the same conversations every shift, and the overtime and all that. And it's definitely been a massive change, even in the the ones that are ahead of us. Yeah, seen a big change in them too. Yeah, it's not yeah. it's not the taboo as it was. You know, put your feelings in a box and bury them. That we used to be told. Yeah, that's so big change. Advice, best advice ever. Yeah, I uh, one of our kind of national initiatives when it comes to like the internal teams. Um, yeah, I'm a I'm a big supporter of of SISM of of critical incident stress management. I think those teams are are well trained. I think that I don't think it's a a perfect like doctrine and program, but I think that it's one of the best that exists. I've seen the results of it. I've worked alongside those guys. Um, most of the time when SISM gets activated, actually, let's think of it like this, because especially any firefighter that's on here, you know ICS, right? How do we do ICS? We do it through mutual aid agreements, right? Like that's how all agencies operate, right? Um, you know, in emergency management, we don't we don't just like, uh, we, we can't service all the, the trees and the down power lines and all that. Like, you know, we have guys from Texas and North Carolina stage. We've got those linemen stage, right? We work with other agencies. We have mutual aid agreements in place to be able to share uh, or provide resources in those times of need, right? And a lot of times that's kind of how SISM works, where you have a partner agency that is the one that is responding to that critical incident within that agency, right? Why are we not doing the same type of thing with peer support? Why don't we just have partner agencies that are responding to the other partner agencies as opposed to the internal team only responding to their internal agency makes no sense to me whatsoever that's like a simple fix that can start turning the tide while we while we make progress on the actual training and dissemination of like the practices and fixing the practices for those teams internally well i like the idea I love the idea, but I can tell you why it doesn't happen a lot because it's a dick measuring contest because my department's going to handle my department and I don't need you and your little podunk department coming in here and talking to my people. Right. So <laughs> that's what it boils down to. I mean, it, it does. It, that's what it is. It, it does. It's, it's an ego driven thing a lot of times because yeah. I mean, that's just how bureaucracy works. Um, because it's led by a top-down type thing. And those individuals, let's be real, the good idea fairy strikes way too often up there, right? Oh, and all of a sudden, man. oh my God, we're going to do this thing, right? Like, and, and sometimes it really results in some good stuff. But more often than not, it by the time it filters down, 
everyone, which is your core base, all all the boots on the ground guys are like, what the f, dude? Like, yeah, serious. Well, <laughs> well, that's that's part of the thing, and we've talked about it multiple times. Of whenever you get to that point in leadership, you have to stay connected to what's going on at the ground level because that's whenever you see departments that are really really struggling it's it's really easy and it's pretty obvious the leadership is disconnected from what's actually going on and you know they do start to get the good idea fairy and things start happening a perfect example of that would be like the new thing that i don't know if you've seen in the news but like there are some departments that are pushing this electric fire truck thing oh yeah yeah Gr great fucking idea except for i don't know too many you know fire stations or firehouses that have like super reliable shorelines to keep it charged you know That's and in the rural communities yeah. yeah and and what happens whenever if you have a city that's spread out and you have long distance runs mm -hmm. and then you're consistently on, yeah and you're on scene of i don't know a two alarm apartment fire or a three alarm apartment fire where you're going to be there for three hours throwing water the whole time is that going to last that long i don't think it is yeah i can't imagine how much energy would be needed to produce like or to operate the pumps for as long as you guys would need just on on a fire truck you know i mean let alone just an ems vehicle sitting there you know for hours on end and then you still have back-to-back -back calls you mm -hmm. know code three on every call you're going to like yeah what? i just because yeah, those uh, lights and sirens don't draw any power at all i mean that's no that's a lot of batteries. <laughs> yeah, but how much water do you get to carry if you got to carry like like that much battery, right? Yeah, and then what's the what's the weight of the, the vehicle itself? Because that tank, that water tank, better be extremely reinforced. Let's be honest. I mean, yeah, a small leak, I, a small leak in a tank know. is a problem. There's a and how many it? how many you know in our in our careers how many fire trucks have we been through? Um, how many rigs have we been on? Been on also at least four different types. And how many have had leaks in the pump? At least four different types. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you use them if they're gonna, you know, welds aren't gonna hold. You're gonna have issues. Seals break. Yeah, it's natural with mechanics. And now you throw in a battery. <laughs> it's sitting on top of. I'm not saying it's gonna be a problem. Well, we can ask. I think it's uh, <laughs> Lo Loveland, Colorado, or somewhere. They've got one. I think they got San Francisco their had one. San Francisco might have one. Of course, they do. One of one of them burned up not too long ago. I don't remember where. Saw it. I was like, huh, shocker. Blew not up the... like a like a Samsung Galaxy phone on an airplane. Yeah. Yeah. So, but anyway, that's just I was using that to illustrate a point of you know leadership has to stay in touch with what's going on with their people, and they got to be, you know. You have to put your people first. I mean, ultimately, because you can have fire trucks break down. It, that is what it is. Fire stations can, you know, have issues, whatever, you know, equipment problems. That is what it is. But how much money does it take to retrain somebody that you lost to suicide? Right. You know, and then what's the emotional toll going to be on your department? Because yeah. an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. Mm -hmm. Notice this, the ripple effect on each of them. You know, you have somebody do, somebody who does kill themselves or tries to, I mean, that affects so many people. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, it, it grows, it grows, it grows. But on the other hand, if you do a little bit of prevention, 
it's going to grow too. Yeah. And yeah. maybe you, you can't get it down from the, the 44 to, you know, zero. Zero is the goal. Yeah. But, but I mean, I'd rather hear 16 than 44. And that that's a step in the right direction. Like, I want to hear zero. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying any right. good thing, you know. Get what you're saying. I don't, yeah. want, I don't want people thinking <laughs> I'm advocating for it. But, you know, you got to start moving in that direction little by little. It's yeah. not going to be fixed overnight, unfortunately. And that's our goal. Yeah. But I think what, what Brian's doing is 10 steps in the right direction instead of half a step. Yeah, absolutely. 100% agree. And it's yeah. probably been an uphill battle the entire time. Whew. Yeah. Um, I do have to say, <clears throat> you know, I, I've when I was kind of doing the story in the beginning, Again, I, I didn't plan to, to do what I'm doing. Um, I was just making a program for this one place. And what happened was basically other all of these other organizations saw this thing and said, hey, can we do that too? And that's when I was like, oh, well, like, let's just box this up and deliver it, right? So organizations, these RCOs, we provide all of this stuff for free. And so like when we... We operate very, very lean. I take no salary as national director. I have other little contracts. I'm 100% disabled. I have that pay, you know, like I, there's no need for me to take pay for that stuff, which allows me to devote all the time and resources that I am doing or, or providing <clears throat> to those direct programs. Because at the end of the day, like each one of these places, they are subject matter experts in what's going on in their area, right? Uh, kind of like how you said, like, you know, firehouse to firehouse, even, I mean, yeah, you can break it down squad by squad, right? But the firehouse to firehouse is different, right? Uh, every one of these cities and areas that, that these organizations service is a different individual warrior culture. If we just look at veterans, like Miami is vastly different than Tampa, which is vastly different than Jacksonville, which is vastly different than Tennessee. You know, it's, it's, and the available resources are so different. So getting guys trained so they understand not just what's local to them, but also, you know, again, like, I don't know if you guys are members and you don't need to say this or not, but, you know, like IAFF, right? Like that's an international organization, right? The IAFF Center of Excellence, by the way, which is up Maryland, I believe. Mm -hmm. It's in Maryland. Specifically for veterans, I mean, for firefighters, you got to be union or prior union and good standing, even if you're retired, um, to be able to go there. Their program is pretty damn good, it's about as good as it gets mm -hmm. when it comes to like working with the firefighter population specifically. You know, they they give us a lot of their research and stuff, and we utilize some of their stuff in our training and everything. Um, but like that is the, the the access to different organizations that are doing really good work. All Clear Foundation, which is in Colorado, they're in Denver. Um, organizations like that that having a national or international reach um there are so many services that are outside what you think like your home bubble is right or your county that you work in hell i most first responders i know don't even live in the county that they work in they l work in a county other than where they actually live so they're moving around as it is right um that'd be so nice it would be nice <laughs> oh, yeah. is it like that yeah, for you we, we have to live in the city we work in Ah, all right. All right. I'm not going to ask the city because that's now we'll tell you later. Yeah. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to blast that one. Yeah. Um, 
But but again, I mean, you guys can see the issues of living and working in the same area. I mean, think about all our law enforcement buddies, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they got for down here. It's Publix, right? That's our grocery store. You know, you you're going shopping in Publix with your kids and your wife. Like you're running into people, you know, you've been on a DV call with, right? Mm-hmm. Or you've put cuffs on before, and and all of those types of interactions. And then all of you guys in the profession, you have those places where it was a critical incident that impacted you, maybe not in the extreme, but, but a little bit. And then you got to drive by that intersection, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There's a little bit of reliving it. And, and those, how many of those do you have, right? That compound trauma that just stacks every day. Like a lot of, a lot of first responders I work, they're like, Oh, thank you for your service. I'm like, F that bro. Thank you for yours. Like granted. Yeah, we did what we did, but like I did it on another side of the world. I did it for like a year and then I came home. Granted, I brought a lot of that stuff back mentally, you know what I mean? But I don't have to live in that for 20, 30 years, right? You guys are out there kicking ass every single day, day after day, inherently knowing like today, hopefully today's not too bad of a day, right? Like you're never like, oh, today's gonna be a good day. Like you just hope that it's not too bad, right? That's that's what most of my first responder buddies tell me. So. I'd love to know like your guys outlook on what it's like to do, you know, 10 plus years in the profession and maybe how you guys have coped with that or things you've heard about um, that are good strategies of coping with, you know, the day in day out work of doing that, even if you get a Kelly day here or there, you know, you want to go first or put them on the spot. I mean, I, that's that's my goal. <laughs> yeah, I used to be the unhealthy habits. Let's be honest. We we all we both did that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of drinking on our days off. But anymore, man, I, I don't really do anything anymore. <laughs> right? You know, we'll go riding every once in a while on the motorcycles, but I I think it's just hanging with friends and family for the most part. Not really talking about work or anything like that. You kind of tell them your day a little bit, but I know we have conversations a lot about, about the stuff we've been on, but gun range, maybe <laughs> going to shoot. I love, I, we, you know, we both like to go shoot. Lead therapy. Absolutely. Yeah. Going out and riding, yeah. right? Like all yeah. of those types of things. You mentioned the family stuff and the friends, right? Like that, the social support thing, because let's be real, like in our professions, divorce is common. Right. Yeah. What? Never heard so, that. I'm just saying. <laughs> Wait, you're on marriage too. Yeah. I'm on marriage too. Yeah. I'm, surprised we're, I'm surprised we're still married. We got 16 coming up here uh, <laughs> in a couple months. She's still staying. So I can't get rid of her. <laughs> I mean, the the nature of the job is. I mean, I, I had a divorce from the army, so we're in we're in a club. You know. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> it's hard on spouses because the mission comes first, right? Like that. That is the deal. And, and God bless all the spouses out there, you know, whether they're still a spouse or not, like they, they, they signed up for something they didn't really realize it was what it was. Right. Yeah. We do the jobs and they're just sitting at home. I mean, they, I know mine <laughs> takes a beating every once in a while. I come home, I'm, you know, after working a few shifts in a row and I'm grumpy as hell. I don't want to, I don't want to talk. I don't want to touch. I just want you to leave me alone. Cause I'm, I'm tired of people at that point. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't love her. And I just, I need, I need an hour or two to 
decompress. Yeah, just hear, sit in silence. Well, you know, no radio going off, no TV. I mean, no nothing. That's that's part of, you know, doing this podcast and where we're at being aware of the mental health issues and things that go on with the job. You know, um, I think that's probably the first step and knowing, okay, look, I need to decompress. I need to unplug. I need to get fire station life out of my head for a little while and just relax. I need silence, you know? And that's, that's a big one for me is like, especially whenever, you know, I come home, like I'll talk to my wife and you know, whatever she goes to work and then I will sit here. No sound just because I've been hearing bells and radio for 24 hours or 48 hours, whatever it might've been. And I don't want to hear anything. I just want silence for a little while and then, you know, get up and, but that's a way for me to decompress, you know, you video know, the first get, things I do. I get home after, after I say hi and, and kiss my wife, yeah. I take a shower. Yeah. That's a good whether, whether I'm going to go down and work out or not. First thing I do is take a shower. Yep. I, I just, it's just washing it off me. Yep. And it might be, a 30 minute shower. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> just stand there under the, the water bill's gotta be um, probably. I don't know. I don't she pays the bills. <laughs> I just make money. <laughs> I work overtime. But I'll just see, I'll just stand there. The the things you guys are talking about though, you know, those are all effective, legitimate coping strategies. Right. I mean, you you may not have ever thought of it in this way, but like when you go and you take that shower, right? Because honestly, that's that's I use that too, right? Like I'll sometimes take two or three showers a day, depending on like how long the day was and I work from home and stuff, because literally getting in the shower is like meditative for me, right? It's a mindfulness exercise, right? Like I go through my routine of, you know, washing myself and my hair and mm -hmm. all that, you know, and all that stuff, but just sitting there and being alone and silent and mindful of like processing the things that have happened maybe in the past couple hours or a couple days, right? If you're mm -hmm. doing 24s or 48s or something like that, you know, um, those are effective coping strategies. The question then becomes, so if, if this is part of your coping strategy, I'm not asking you this directly. You can ask, I'll answer whatever you, whatever you want me to. I mean, so, so then what's the follow-up? So what do you do after that? Right? Like what is, if you, if that's the beginning part of your, your kind of wind down routine, what are some other effective ways of like how you get, do you like go and, Oh, let me do dinner with the family. So I'm with the family. I'm kind of like, reintegrating a little bit do anything that no, you I mean, do her, her and i will eat dinner my son's 21 he lives on his own now but i mean we we eat dinner together every night i'm home and then she works at home so i annoy her why she works that's fun for me <laughs> <laughs> she hates it but <laughs> one thing whenever i'm home one thing we do is we eat, after i shower we eat breakfast together i mean she, she has her, her daily meeting at 8 30 so we usually try and eat a little before that and then it's either schoolwork or I'll play video games or come over here and do the podcast stuff, whatever we need to have going on. But it's just kind of go to chill mode and not really, we have to mow the yard and stuff like that. Now everybody quit. <laughs> my son mowed the yard for a while. And then my, my brother and sister-in-law were doing it. They just bought a house so and had a baby. So it was kind of helping them out too. Yeah. It was a win-win, but I mean, kind of do what I need to get done around the house and, but I'll watch TV or video games, kind of relax and not really do anything. That didn't sound like much, but for me, it's 
I'm a movie and TV guy. I love movies. I love TV shows. And I'll watch the same one a thousand times. Yeah. You know, I know Jeremy's, a, he does the same thing. But, oh, absolutely, man. I mean, but it's, it's I, to me, so, that's therapeutic. It's just because when I watch a movie or a TV show, whether I've seen it before or not, it's escaping reality. Sure. I don't have to deal with whatever is on the plate from work or if one of the cars isn't working right or, or a bike or whatever, whatever it is. It's, I have an hour and a half to two hours of a zone out. And I, I, I escape into the reality of whatever that movie is mm-hmm. or virtual reality, I guess. Before you have to get but, but, back to reality and deal with the normal stuff. You're yeah. Saying. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, it's I'm just kind of decompressing. Way. I'm a big, so I'm a huge like Star Wars and Marvel nerd. In fact, <laughs> thank God. <laughs> in fact, so Project Rebirth, this is the, this is like uh, your little Easter egg here. Um, Project Rebirth is the name of the program that created Captain America. That's the actual name of the program. That's where Project Rebirth comes from, is because it took puny little Steve and turned him <laughs> into Captain America. So I have, a room, I have a Marvel room next door to me, my other guest bedroom. Uh, it is full of Funkos and posters and signed stuff. And like, I have like over 200 Funkos. Uh, of all the Marvel and stuff, <laughs> I'm on the I'm on YouTube videos like watching. That's like my escape, like into that world. Plus, like I identify with so many characters. Everything from from Steve Rogers being Captain America to for anyone that ever saw uh, Avengers Endgame, you have like Fat Thor, who's literally an alcoholic. Like he's yeah. in an alcoholic depression. This badass god has turned himself into a piece of crap <laughs> feels like crap about himself he's in a depressive state and there's the scene where like he goes back in time and he sees his mom mm-hmm. and like, calls back Mjolnir his hammer right and he like turns and he's like all giddy he's like I'm still worthy right like that line means so much to me because especially for like a lot of my buddies that that are veterans right like at one point we were at the top of our game like a one badass dudes right and girls just kicking ass and doing what we needed to do physically and mentally strong for the most part right um <laughs> but like now we got out and like it it changed right or or something happened i had an injury or something like that and like i i know that person exists but now i'm not physically and mentally and emotionally connecting to that person right so like in those movies those types of things i find like a lot of strength and hope and stuff like that so I thought Marvel did a great job showing that the with Thor and the, the survivor's guilt and yeah. not being worthy and being able to stop Thanos and all that. And I loved that fat Thor. I thought that was great. It's awesome. I love it when there's like move over Lebowski. Cause yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a Lebowski fan too. <laughs> Dude, man. For God's sakes, eat a salad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Eat a salad. <laughs> Uh, you know what though there are so many and it's it's great that you brought that up but there's so much that you can take from those movies and the like the hero's journey type thing of you know even tony stark of you know whenever steve tells him you know in the very first avengers movie you're not the guy to lay down over the wire to let the other guy you know crawl over you and then he's like well i just cut the wire you know and then you see at the end you know, he's flying the bomb up into space mm-hmm. and he knows like, I'm not getting back, but this is what I have to do. 
he in that same movie he there was a part where he's <laughs> steve says something to him and he, and he replies back like oh well who are you oh he says who are you without the suit? And he's like millionaire, <laughs> playboy, philanthropist, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and Black Widow's like, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. But so, everything good so about like, Steve came out of a bottle, right? I, <laughs> you know what I mean? Nah, it takes the man. Yeah. If you want Falcon and Winter Soldier, you'll see what a soldier serum does to U.S. agent. But <laughs> yeah, my guessing. Um, but but what happens at the end of Endgame, right? This guy who was extremely self-centered, selfish and self-centered, ego-driven, right, became the person who knew that when shit hit the fan, I am willing to sacrifice myself for my team and for everyone else, right? And that is the mentality that separates us from most civilians, right, is that we willingly go into those fires or those calls or into that battle knowing that there's... We don't even think about it, right? Like it's it's our the decision's already been made. Like I doesn't matter if I come in or out. It's I'm going in, right? I'm gonna go towards the gunfire and stuff like that. Um and for those of us especially like I, if there's anyone that's that's watching this or hearing this and they're retired and you feel that loss of purpose or that loss of identity and stuff, let me tell you something. First off, you're also not alone in that. Second, we need you in the peer support profession. We have scholarships at Project Rebirth to get you trained end to end. We'll pay all your fees and everything so you can go back and work with your brothers and sisters who need you, who are active, right? Because you have experience and wisdom that is so valuable, right? We see a lot of suicides happening, especially in the veteran communities, the older veterans, because they feel left behind. Same thing with a lot of the retired professionals and the first responder stuff, you know? It's like, well, what do I do now? I did 30 years of ass kicking and like, now I mow, all I do is mow my lawn, right? Yeah. But, yeah. but it, I, I do some, you know, side gig work, whatever, but like there's not that, that every day, like I have this mission every single day that gets taken away for the most part, right? And, uh, and we need you guys to join us on this lawn. Right? We need to hold this line for us because there are a lot of civilians who are really, really smart and really are, are good at doing so much work. But when it comes to breaking down the barriers and the entry point for guys like us three, right, that when we're struggling and we finally, it's gotten so bad that we're finally like, okay, you know what? I think I need some help. Uh, we need you guys to be at the ready to help us so we can help them. Yeah, absolutely. There's still a mission. 100%. You know? Yeah. So, and I think that's a, that's a great idea for retirees to, to step into that role mm -hmm. because it is, you know, it's a loss of what you've done for 25, 30, 35 years of I've been on this team. I've had this mission. I've had this, you know, goal that I do every day or every third day or whatever it may be. And now you have that loss of identity and you don't have that team around you and that camaraderie, whereas this would be a natural step in, mm -hmm. you know, and you're doing something important. And instead of, I mean, in a roundabout way, you're helping the public, but you're helping the people who, how do I say this without sounding like an asshole that mean the most, do you understand what I'm saying? Like at least risk, mean the most to us a lot of times yeah. because yeah brothers and sisters man like that's yeah what we do yeah 
it's how it is. Yeah. So not trying to sound like an asshole, just came out no, that way. Just, <laughs> just are an asshole. I mean, that's how I sound a lot too, but yeah. 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 it is what it is. <laughs> be who you are and be proud of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I do like a lot of conferences, speak at a lot of conferences and stuff like that. And, and granted, uh, I don't bro it out in the conferences necessarily. Like we're like we bro it out. Uh, so I always love being on a platform. I don't care if it's public or not like this, uh, but that I can, I can be that portion of me not have to be very like clinical or professional in, in that sense, you know, right. Just be real and unapologetic. Like this is what it is type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think there's too many people who aren't doing that. Um, or they are doing that, but they don't know how to say it correctly. They don't know how to how to put it into words properly, or they don't know like what the real message they're trying to get across is, right? And again, like I think that the overall message is should always be that you're not alone in this thing, and there is help out there. There are organizations that truly can do what it is, help you get to where you're trying to go, and you not get screwed over by asking for help well put yep i like it well brian thanks for coming on the show man we really really appreciate it um this was awesome so yeah, he did 99 percent of the work it was great <laughs> well, I don't, I'm, I'm a talker if you can <laughs> no i think you're in the right position too for what you're doing i mean you're definitely right where you need to be thank you my brother i truly appreciate that Thank um, you for inviting me on here. I mean, this was great. I, I really, really enjoyed this this session with y'all. Yeah, so did we. Appreciate it. Just give him the final thought. He's got it. He's dialed in. Yeah. Well, I think he he nailed it with that. The, you're not alone. Did you did yeah. you miss that part of the conversation? <laughs> no. no. I just wanted to reiterate it. <laughs> say it again. Sometimes you got to say it ten times for someone to get it. Uh, well, you ain't wrong. You're most of our audiences. Firefighters and cops. So yeah, they're pretty thick-headed guys. And yeah. girls. Let's be honest. We are <laughs> we are stubborn people. Yeah. That's so. nice. All right. Well, um, yeah. Everybody, thanks for stopping by. Um, like you said, you're not alone. If you know somebody that's struggling, reach out. Let them know you cared. Let them know what the resources are around them. Um, yeah. And if you're struggling, reach out. There are plenty of resources. So uh, yeah. Thanks for stopping by and we'll see you next time.